0: We are about halfway through the 48 Ways to Wisdom. This is again in chapter 6, Mishnah number 6 of Pertre Avos, of Ethics of the Fathers. And this is the comprehensive list of what we need to do to acquire Torah, and more broadly to acquire wisdom as well. And way number 24 is Be'emunas Chachamim, which literally translates as having amuna, having faith in chachamim, in the sages. And as always, we're going to try to understand what that means just in isolation. What does it mean to have trust, to have faith in the sages? A. B. We're going to try to understand how that contributes to, towards the achievement of wisdom. And we're going to start with that in, in general. What does it mean to have faith, to have trust in the sages? A and B will try to apply that to the pursuit of wisdom. Now, if you think about it, it's a bit of a foreign concept. The term Amuna. What does Amuna mean? Amuna means faith, belief. We have faith in God. What is this idea that we can have faith in a sage, faith in a man? So you'll notice there are, or at least there's one person, in the Torah, that we have faith in. When Moshe comes and he's coming to rescue the Jewish people, and he performs some signs to the elders of the Israelites, the verse tells us, this is in chapter 4 of Exodus, The people have faith. They believe him. Later on in chapter 14 of Exodus, this is after the splitting of the sea, right before the song at the sea, the verse tells us, they believed in Hashem, they had emunah in Hashem, u and in Moshe, his servant. Again, the people have faith, have emuna, have trust in Moshe. Finally, in Exodus 19, right before the Sinai revelation, God tells Moshe, the reason why we're having the Sinai revelation is so that the nation hears when I speak to you, So the nation listens into the conversation that I have with you. And also in you, in Moshe, they will forever believe. So we have this notion of faith in Moshe. The nation does display emuna, faith in Moshe. Of course, this is not blind faith, mindless faith. Moshe did signs, there was a splitting of the sea, God spoke to him and we listened in. It was faith born out of evidence, out of testimony, but they do harbor faith in Moshe. Moshe is a prophet, and part of our system of religion is to believe that the Almighty speaks to prophets and he conveys his will via his prophets. In fact, in the 30 Principles of Faith, we have a principle to believe in prophecy. And there's a very iconic Rambam that we've talked about many times. And whenever we get a chance to revisit this Rambam, we love to. In the laws of the foundations of the Torah, chapter 8, he talks about why the Jewish people believe in Moshe. If you think about it, our entire religion, I guess outside the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, we heard from Hashem directly. But all of the laws of our religion we heard from Moshe. We believe, we trust that he's not telling us anything of his own accord. It's all what he heard from the Almighty. But nevertheless, we are placing a lot of trust in Moshe. Maybe he's a fraud. Maybe he's a charlatan. Maybe he's lying. How do we know he's legit? That's the subject that the Ramam addresses. And he says, We do not believe in Moshe because of the miracles that he did. And the reason why is because if you believe in a prophet based upon miracles and signs and wonders that they do, you will always have a niggling suspicion and doubt. Maybe they used some sort of sorcery, some sort of black magic to produce that miracle. Trust that is established in a prophet based upon a miracle There's always a little tiny bit of suspicion maybe there's some sort of trick, some sort of sorcery, some sort of magic. I don't know what it is. I don't know how they did it. But there's still room for doubt. And therefore, all the miracles that Moshe did were all based upon a certain need. Not to bring proof for prophecy. Not to bring proof that Moshe is different. It was based upon a need. The Egyptians surround the Jewish people and they're threatening to kill us. And we're surrounded by the water. We're completely trapped. So what does Moshe do? He splits the sea. Why does he do that? Not to prove his legitimacy, but to save the nation. And now we're in the wilderness and we need food or else we'll die. So Moshe gives us the manna. And we're thirsty. Food we don't have water, we'll die. So he hits the rock and able to emit water from the rock. And then there's the Korach rebellion, and there's a need to stamp out the insurrection. And Moshe performs the miracle, and the earth gobbles them up. All the miracles that Moshe did were all based upon a pressing need for the nation. It wasn't a standalone miracle to prove Moshe's legitimacy. So why, in fact, do we believe in Moshe? Says the Rambam, based upon this verse that we just quoted. At the Sinai revelation, we saw with our own eyes. We weren't told by someone else. We heard with our own ears the fire, the sounds, the pillars of fire, and Moshe is approaching the fire. And we listen in when God
1: speaks to him.
0: And we quote some verses the verse in Devarim, chapter 5. God spoke to us face to face. We were prophets. God didn't give us some sort of tradition of the past. We witnessed ourselves. And he quotes the verse, 99. The reason why we had the time of relation was to prove via this higher level, not just prophecy based upon miracles and signs and wonders, but prophecy that is vetted, that is verified. Via co-prophecy, where an entire nation has national revelation, and experiences prophecy alongside Moshe. That is why I believe in Moshe forever. So Rambam differentiates between the two types of verification of prophecy. You have prophecy verified upon a miracle. Some does a miracle, and we have no way to explain that based upon natural phenomena. Okay? This seems to prove that they are different. They are special. They are a prophet. But that's a low level of verification.
1: All the other prophets, they proved their credentials in that matter.
0: Only Moshe had this higher level of verification done via co-prophecy. And therefore, Moshe's prophecy is an entirely different class. And if you want to contest the prophecy of Moshe, you are by definition a false prophet. Because no one else had such a type of verification. The only way someone can have the same level of credibility as Moshe, it's only if they too are vetted with a national revelation with co-prophecy of an entire nation. And that's not happening again. And therefore, we have faith in Moshe above all the prophets. He's the father of all the prophets. And that's why we get the Torah from Moshe. We know it's from, from the Almighty. And that's why all the Torah comes from Moshe. He is the conduit of Torah. We know he's legit. So the idea of faith in Moshe, as it's presented in the Torah, faith in the human, it makes a lot of sense. And you could say on a similar level, you know, we have to listen to prophets, even other prophets. You know, Samuel, Jeremiah,
1: Ezekiel, Joshua. We believe in them because they are telling us the word of God. But
0: how does this apply to other sages that are not prophets? We have. A Mishnah that tells us, chapter 6, Mishnah 6, way number 24. You have to have faith in the sages. The sages is not just Moshe, it's not just prophets, the sages. And that seems like a foreign idea. What does that mean and why is that a portal through which we can acquire Torah? So there are a few different approaches to this concept. The verse tells us in Devarim, chapter 17, verse 11, that we have to listen to the council of elders, the Sanhedrin. There's the Supreme Court, and they are the final word of halacha. And when they render a ruling, it's an obligation, it's a mitzvah for us to listen to them. And we must not deviate or depart from what they say, not right and not left. Talmud tells us, even if they tell you the right is left, left is right, we must adhere to the rulings of the Sanhedrin. Typically, you know, we have critique and uh, we don't buy everything that we're told. And when someone tells you something that you could sense is wrong, there's no obligation to listen to them. Telling you right is left and left is right, why would you listen to them? When it comes to the Sanhedrin, you have to accept their ruling even if it sounds absurd. Now, does this mean that the Sanhedrin is infallible? After all, they're humans. And humans are prone to error. Even Moshe Moshe made mistakes. The Torah details them. And yes, with Moshe you can claim that because this is the initial transference of Torah. It was imperfectly, there was divine intervention to remove mistakes. But do we believe that there is some sort of papal-like infallibility to humans? Only God is perfect. Humans are imperfect. That's why we're humans. If we were perfect, we'd be God. If we were so, so, so perfect, we'd be like like an angel. Even an angel is not the perfection of God. So Moshe, I can understand. Well, Dehemiah says, I'm going to prevent any mistakes from, from happening. But what about subsequent sages? So there's a few ideas here.
1: One idea, the Talmud tells us, that just as with Moshe, we
0: know that his conveyance of Torah was perfect to us, Even subsequent sages, there is going to be divine intervention to prevent them from erring. The Talmud has some great stories about the animals of the great sages. The donkey of Rabbi Pinchas Ben-Yair. He had a donkey. And this donkey would refuse to eat non-kosher food. They offered him food. They were at an inn, they offered him food, and he refused to eat it. So said, well, maybe it's got some dust in it, maybe it's got some pebbles in it. They removed all the pebbles, then cleaned it up, he still didn't eat it. So they go to the great rabbi, your animal's refusing to eat, so well, did you tithe it? Is the food tithed? And he said, "Uh, well, no, I haven't tithed it yet. well, he's not going to eat it. This is my animal. This is my donkey. And the Talmud gives another story about the... Famed donkey of Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair. It was once kidnapped. It was stolen, and the thieves are like, "Yeah, great! We got this donkey. We stole it. It's great. It's gonna. Be, it's so sturdy. Look at it. This do great work for us. Let's feed it." And they give it some food, and refuses to eat. It's not gonna like eat non kosher food, and for three days the animals refusing to eat, and the thieves say. Well, I have no use for this carcass. It's going to
1: die. Let me just release it. And the animal trudges back to its owner. And it arrives and it's famished. And some of the people in the household say, oh, we're going to feed it. And it refuses to eat. So the great rabbi asks them,
0: is it demai? Now, what is demai? So there's something called tevel, which means untithed grain. You have grain, you gotta tithe, you gotta give the, the truma to the coin and the Ma'aser to the levi. you gotta tithe it. Before you enjoy it, you gotta tithe it. There are actually several tithes. But then you have the following situation. Suppose you buy grain from someone that you suspect did not tithe it. You don't know for sure it's untithed. It's not Tevel. Tevel means for sure untithed. But you have very good reason to suspect this person is not so fastidious, they're not so meticulous about tithing. So it may be tithed, it may be untithed. You don't know. And therefore you are required to tithe it just to make certain that it's not untithed. But because... It may, in fact, have been tithed. You don't know. It's called demai. It's a different class. Now, the law states you are not allowed to feed your animal tevel. If it's untithed, you cannot feed it to your animal. But suppose you buy it from someone that you may suspect did not tithe it. If it's demai, not tevel, it's demai. It may be untithed. You are allowed to feed that to your animal. So they fed the famished donkey with
1: demai. And the animal refused. So Rabbi Pichas ben Yaris said, you know, my animal,
0: it's very strict. Even though the law states that an animal can eat from demai, it wants to be more strict. It's stringent upon itself. You have to tithe it. So they tied it and the animal ate it. This is this legendary donkey that the Talmud tells us the donkey of Rabbi Pentechus ben What that means is that the holiness of the great sage actually influenced the animals as well. The animals wouldn't touch. Non-kosher. And they'd be extra stringent. The Talmud elsewhere, when it talks about the degradation of the generation, there's a line in the Talmud where one of the sages said, we are nothing compared to our great antecedents, our great predecessors. If they were like angels, then we're like humans. And if they are like humans, then we are like donkeys. But not the donkey of Rabbi Pichas Banyar. We're like ordinary donkeys. Now here's the question. A donkey doesn't have a human brain, doesn't know the halacha. How does the donkey know about all these laws of tevel and Demai and tithing and kosher?
1: The Talmud tells us this is an example of the Almighty ensuring
0: that even the animals of the righteous are not going to make blunders. The Talmud uses this story as an example of the principle that the Almighty is going to make sure that no mistakes are going to happen where someone who's righteous is going to do something which may be a violation. And if even the animals of these righteous people are making any mistakes, certainly you can trust that the the sages themselves, the Almighty will prevent them from making mistakes that are beyond their control. So we have this idea, even outside of Moshe, outside of prophets, there is this idea of divine oversight. And perhaps you would say that, you know, Sanhedrin, these are great sages. And we have to trust them. They're not making a mistake. Well, but they're humans. Yes, they're humans. But perhaps the faith that we place in this nation is well-founded. God will give them the divine guidance to ensure that they don't make a blunder. Now, of course, this doesn't happen on its own. They have to do a lot to make sure that they don't make the mistake themselves. There are all sorts of protections and, and safety measures to prevent mistakes. But there is this notion that the Almighty will aid those who are dedicated to pursuing the truth and will make sure that they won't make any mistakes. As an example of this,
1: the most grave halachic dilemma. When you have a halachic problem, you go to a great halachic arbiter, an authority.
0: The most serious question that could ever come to the desk of a great halachic sage is the dilemma of an aguna. A married woman, there are only two ways that she can marry someone else. Either her husband dies, or her husband delivers her a document of divorce, a get. Suppose the husband disappears. We have no death certificate, no confirmation of their death, and there's no divorce document. But the husband is gone. Maybe the cartel got him. Maybe ISIS got him. Maybe they just died. They fell fell into the river. We'll never know. If we have a body, we have some evidence. If we have a document of divorce, we don't need a body. What do you do in such a situation? Suppose... Soldiers go to war. Some of them get injured. Some of them die. And some of them are missing in action. We don't know what happened to them. There's explosions and we just find a, pardon of me for saying this, you just find a pile of limbs. You don't know whose is what. You don't know. Maybe you have a dog tag. Maybe you don't. got pulverized. You don't know. People are missing. And you have very, very strong grounds to suspect that they died. But you don't have airtight proof. What do you do? This is a very, very serious problem. Because if the husband is actually alive, she is a married woman and that's adultery. And those kids may be born from a subsequent marriage are bastards, are mamzer. What do you do? These are the most serious questions that could ever appear in halachit nature. And they always go to the great sages. In recorded history, we have no example of a great halachic authority ruling that a woman is permitted to remarry based upon evidence that's not airtight. If the guy's actually dead and we have a body, we know we know that they're dead. But there were times, like in war. You have testimony of friends. You have a little pile of organic matter. You don't have anything. Today you have DNA testing, so maybe that helps. But there's never been an instance in all of documented history where the man shows up and she's got a whole new family with her new husband and the man, the husband shows up. It's never happened. And the kinds of ideas that, or or halachic arguments that are presented are sometimes very tenuous.
1: And they don't sound very persuasive. But nevertheless, there is this idea that if
0: someone is a great sage, the Almighty will prevent them from making mistakes. And if they rule that the husband is dead, the husband is dead. And if he's not dead, he's going to die right away. He has to be dead because the Almighty will not allow a great sage to make such a blunder. So that's perhaps one way to look at this idea of treating the Sanhedrin as if they have infallibility.
1: We can rely on them because the Almighty will ensure that they are correct.
0: I will note there is another way of looking at this. The Sefer Echinuch, so that's the book that we're using in our mitzvah series. So now we're in the Ethics series. But the Sefer in mitzvah number 496, the mitzvah to adhere to the ruling of the Sanhedrin, he says something very novel. He says, let's assume the Sanhedrin is not infallible and they may make mistakes. And notwithstanding all the safety measures and all the protections that we have in place to prevent those mistakes from happening, mistakes may happen. Nevertheless, we must follow their ruling because if we don't, we cease to have a religion. If there's no final word that renders a ruling that's final, we no longer have a functioning religion. It's going to start to splinter and it's going to go in different places, and that is way worse than having one mistake. And therefore, even if we can tolerate the idea that the senators is not infallible, they may make mistakes. Nevertheless, we follow them. And that's another way to look at this idea of trust in sages. We trust them. Maybe they're 100% right, or maybe they're been wrong. That's the system that has to be in place. Otherwise, we don't have a religion. We know that tradition is very central to our religion. Historically, we have always been very wary, very suspicious, of any innovation. You know, our religion has survived a very, very, very long time under very difficult, precarious circumstances. Any, anytime someone has an improvement, so to speak, that deviates even an inch away from the tradition of our ancestors, it's always going to be treated with great suspicion. Even if it's a good idea, it's a logical idea, it's sensible. Nevertheless, Tradition is very important and we trust our sages. So this is some of the ideas that are featured about this notion to trust the sages in general. Now, in our Mishnah, this idea is being used as a way to acquire Torah, as a way to improve our studying. How does trust in our sages improve our studying? I get that it improves the religion, and yes, we need it for for we need it to trust Moshe for Torah. But how does this help me to acquire? Well, how is this a method to
1: acquire Torah? It's not immediately obvious, and I want to suggest an approach.
0: If you have ever had the great privilege of studying in a yeshiva, you'll note that the method that's used in the yeshiva, is very unusual. You study a piece of Talmud. You study one of the great commentators, Rashi, Tosfos, the Rashba, etc. Or you study a work in Rambam. You never consider the possibility that the Talmud, that the commentaries, that the Rambam made an elementary mistake. If you think about the Rambam, always always marvel at the fact just how much the Rambam accomplished in his lifetime. My grandfather, a blessed member, used to say, if the Gentiles had the Rambam, they would have deified him. Because a human cannot conceive of another human doing so much and being so incredible. How many people would it take to recreate his writings from scratch? Think about what he, what he does. Think about the scope of this project. In one, only one of his projects. Like he, remember, he was the first person to write a commentary on all of uh, the works of the Mishnah. 63 books of Mishnah. He was the first one to write a comprehensive commentary on all of them, all 63 books, and he did that as a teenager. Just get a sense. For a thousand years, no one was able to do it. It's too big. It's too vast. As a teenager, he wrote a commentary on all of Mishnah, all sets of three books that incorporates the Talmud, incorporates everything. This is at a completely different level. But then the Mishnah Torah, okay? The way he himself defines this work is that this work contains all of oral Torah. So Mishnah, Talmud, Midrash, everything. Everything, 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 everything. It's all incorporated into one set of 14 books. How many thousands, tens of thousands of people working day and night
1: for centuries would it take to recreate that? And you're reading a piece,
0: and it seems obvious that he made an elementary error. It's obvious to you. You have the Talmud, and the Ramam is saying something which contradicts the works of the Talmud, and it's obvious And the Rambam cannot argue with the Talmud. It's
1: not possible. Because
0: he's going to give you all the rulings that come from the Talmud. And he just organizes it with the bottom line. You read the Talmud, and you find the corresponding piece in the Rambam,
1: and they just don't match. They don't match. So what do you do? Another example that appears thousands of times in the Talmud. On a standard page of Talmud,
0: you'll have in the inner margin, you have the commentary of Rashi. And on the outer margin, you have the commentary of Tosvos. Tosvos was written by a compilation of sages. Many of them were descendants of Rashi. But invariably, the Tosvos begins its commentary by quoting Rashi and almost always challenging it and questioning it. And very often, the question is so sharp. It's so unassailable. You're like, what was Rashi thinking? There's no wiggle room for Rashi. So you have a Rambam that's problematic. You have a Rashi that's problematic. You have something that does make sense. You have two choices. You can dismiss it. The Rambam made a mistake. Rashi made a blunder. That's what you could do. Or you do what we do in yeshiva. You apply the principle of trust the sages. The Talmud has credibility. The Rambam, Rashi, they have credibility. You have to trust them. They had knowledge and depth of understanding that we cannot fathom. And we give them a degree of credibility.
1: And that's the beginning
0: of our study. That's not the end.
1: We don't stop. We demand
0: upon ourselves to say, okay, this Rambam and this Talmud are compatible. I just don't know how. And I try to put myself in the shoes of the Rambam and say, I'm going to figure it out. And that is how you hitch your wagon to the Rambam
1: to study the depths of Torah. You miss something. He didn't. Or your understanding of the Talmud
0: is different than his understanding, for whatever reason, that you have to figure out. And now you have an opportunity, you have a portal to understand it on a much deeper level. We trust our sages. What does it take to become a great sage? It takes commitment and dedication and selflessness and years of toil in study day and night. To be a real sage, you have to be selfless. You have to complete devotion and dedication and commitment and mastery over all of Torah. And then you read it and it says something completely baffling. Have faith. Have trust. Accord them some credibility. And try to figure out, okay, I'm assuming that this problem is correct. I will not say that he made a mistake. Now, let me try to understand it from their viewpoint, let me try to reconcile what they say with what the sources that they are working off are saying. And again, this is a a totally different way of studying. By doing this, effectively, you're finding a shortcut to the depths of Torah. You're trying to study the Talmud with the same level of profundity as the Rambam. It's a shortcut to plumbing the depths of Torah. You're acknowledging, it takes a little bit of of humility, but you're acknowledging that your misunderstanding or your lack of understanding of how the Rambam is compatible with the Talmud is a reflection of your shallowness of understanding and the different dimension, the profound depth of his. You're giving him some trust. You're trusting him. And by doing that, you are leveling up. You're exposing yourself to an entirely different way of, of learning, of understanding, of studying. And you get to work. And you read the sources very, very carefully. And you read them really, really, really carefully, and just at every stage of the back and forth. What is the question? What is the answer? What part of the question? What assumption of the question is that is the answer addressing? And what about the proof? How exactly is the proof serving to buttress the answer. And you you work really hard. It, It can take a day, a week, a month, or even longer. But if you work hard enough, and you commit your mind hard enough, you will reconcile that Rambam and that Talmud. And then you're going to find evidence that you're right. You look at the precise words of the Rambam and the precise reading of the Talmud. And maybe some other Talmuds that you weren't even aware of. Because the Ramam, of course, didn't cite his sources, which makes it such a thrilling ride. And you're going to find evidence that you, your understanding was correct. And now you've gotten a little tiny window. You've taken a little, a little submersible and survived. You're, you're, you're going down to the, the depths
1: of the seas of the Torah. And how did it all start? It started with some trust. You trusted the sages.
0: Our instinct to say, "Oh, I, I read it. I, I, I stand.
1: I read it even twice," and I read the Rambam, and they're not compatible. You got
0: to trust the sages. Their level of understanding is something you cannot even fathom. I'll, I'll tell you
1: what I read over Shabbos. I read a story. Listen to this. The gone of Vilna once made a remark
0: that every person has to know at least one book of Talmud by heart. Because otherwise, if you don't have a book in front of you, what are you studying? You're supposed to study Torah day and night. How are you supposed to study if you don't know at least one thing by heart? So it was a very famous rabbi that heard that. And he says, you know what? I am going to study one book of Talmud by heart. So he studied the book of Sukkah, which talks about Sukkah, the, the Festival of Sukkos, and the, the four species that we shake on Sukkos, on Sukkos. He studied it again and again until he knew it by heart. And on the intermediate days of the festival, he found himself in the Sukkah visiting the Gona Vilna. And he was so proud of himself. I actually did it, and he tells the go to Vilna. I, I actually did it. I studied the whole the whole book by heart. He says, "Yeah, would you mind if I test
1: you? Would you mind if I test you?" He says, "Sure." He says, "How many times in the book does Rabbi
0: Yehuda and, and Rabbi Meir argue? How many times in the book does Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon argue? How many times in the book does Rabbi and Rabbi Yosef argue? How many times in the book?" does Abai and Rava
1: argue? How many times does Rashi and Tosfos argue? Even if you know something by heart, you don't know, you don't know it that well. And then says the of Vilna, if you look at how the word sukkah is spelled in the Torah, it's spelled in two different ways. It's spelled samach vav chavhei which is how you would spell
0: it if you were writing the vowels in the form of letters. And it's spelled sama khafe, which is how you would spell it if you're not writing the vowels as letters, but in fact they are nekudos. The Do you know why the Torah spells the word sukkah sometimes like this and sometimes like that? Because the gematria of sukkah without a vav is 85, and the gematria of sukkah with a vav is 91. If you study the whole book of Sukkah, the Talmudic tractate of Sukkah, and it describes all different types of Sukkahs,
1: you'll notice that 85 of them are descriptions of Sukkahs that are not kosher.
0: And 91 of them are descriptions of Sukkahs that are, in fact, kosher. And therefore, when it has an extra letter, then it is, it's it's bigger, it's grander, it's fuller that is an indication of it being kosher. And then when it's lacking the letter, that's an indication of it not being kosher. Can you list all 85 instances in the whole book where the final result of the analysis is that it's not kosher and all 91 instances when it is kosher? This is the goat of Vilna. Didn't live so long ago, 250 years ago, 220 years ago he lived. This is a level of mastery we can't even fathom. The Rambam is five hundred years prior. It's that plus 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 plus. If you read it and you say, "Oh,
1: they made a mistake," I read it. You're you're you're,
0: you're a fool. You're not understanding what kind of people we're dealing with over here. Trust the sages. You want to understand a little bit of Torah and its depth. You want to take a little trip down to the depths of Torah. You want to really get a sense of, of a little inkling, a tiny little window, 0.0001% of 1%, of 1%, of 1% of the level of these sages, trust them. And then and then follow their logic and follow their reasoning and find out how they're saying something true. Oh, Rashi says something and then Tosos argues. You think that Rashi did not have a response to Tosos' question? He didn't know the Talmud that they cited?
1: we're dealing with sages, it's not possible for them to not know a teaching in the Talmud.
0: And they knew it, and they said it nonetheless. And you have to figure out why. And if you do, it's a way to acquire Torah. Not just to read it, understand it, but to go deep. Deeper than you would be able to go
1: otherwise. Even in modern times, Our sages get some degree of trust,
0: of credibility. The great Rabbi Chaim Salavechik passed away in 1918, so it's a little more than a century ago, relatively recently.
1: He wrote a very famous work, his commentary on the Rambam. And this is, I think it's 150 or so pieces,
0: where he takes a Rambam. And he does this process, a Rambam, and there's a problem. There's a problem. It doesn't add up. It doesn't reconcile. It's not congruent with the sources. And he resolves it with, with brilliance, with genius. Now, again, if we... If someone's a novice and they wanted to even study one of those pieces, they would need probably at least a month just to prepare to understand the concepts and to understand the the subject matter before you even read the Rambam and, you know, just, just to get a basic background
1: understanding of what we're even talking about. But it's, it's a, it's a modern work and it does this. And
0: there have been many, many, Works written on the Rambam. Again, the Rambam made it interesting for
1: us because he didn't cite sources. So the sources could be anywhere in all of oral Torah. Good luck finding it. So Rabbi Chaim
0: Salvechik wrote once an essay on a difficult passage in Rambam.
1: Any side of the question? And he offered a novel answer, and
0: he finished his piece. The problem is, is that his citation, or his explanation, conflicts with a teaching in the Talmud. So you want to resolve the Rambam with the Talmud, but if that resolution now conflicts with a different teaching in the Talmud, then you're back to square one. And someone raised this problem with the son of Rabbi Salavechik, who was also called Rabbi Salavechik. And they said to him, wait a minute, your father writes this whole beautiful essay and it's great, but the Talmud says otherwise. And he's studying his father's writing, he's like, we've got a problem here, my father's writing doesn't seem to, his reconciliation of the Ramam is great with the Ramam, but there's another teaching in the Talmud that seems to fly in the face of that
1: reasoning. So he tried to reconcile it, and he could not resolve it. And then he said,
0: I guarantee you that when my father was writing this essay, this Talmud that you are citing as a contradiction to what he was writing, it was open on the desk before him. I guarantee it. I don't know what his reconciliation was, but I trust that he had a reconciliation. We're talking about the sages the, the Mishnah tells us, emunas chacham, the sages, trust the sages. These are heavyweights. And they're not in it for some sort of agenda that they're trying to push, some sort of political stuff. They're completely committed to the truth. And if you don't understand their position, afford them some credibility. Consider, just consider, there may be something that you are unaware of, that you are ignorant of. You may be operating on too shallow of a plane, and maybe it's your job to look deeper. And if you do, you may have the opportunity to level up your understanding of Torah, way number 24, to trust the sages. As always, my email address is rabbiwalbi at jima.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.